You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Everyone, thank you so much for, for coming. It's great to see you. Um, when the uprisings began in Syria in March of 2011, uh, they had this similar dynamics to the uprisings we saw in Egypt that brought down Mubarak and Tunisia in uh, Libya, which was essentially a young uh, population peacefully rising up against a brutal authoritarian regime. Um, in time, the systematic brutality of the Assad regime has rendered what was once a peaceful protest uh, into now uh, what is arguably a, a sectarian, uh, if not a civil war, um, uh, but also a potential p- failed state in Syria. And you know, I, I say this in no way wanting to um, take anything away from the re- remarkable bravery um, that the Syrian people have exhibited over the last couple of years. Um, Fred Hoff um, had a wonderful line from one of his uh, recent pieces in which he said, the last vestige of peaceful protests was long killed by regime terror mandating armed resistance. Um, similar to the Lebanese civil war of the 1980s, um, I think Syria in many ways has become, has deteriorated into a regional proxy war um, fought on Syrian soil. And I think what makes Syria somewhat more dangerous than Lebanon is the even greater role played by non-state actors um, like, like Al-Qaeda, which really make groups like Hezbollah uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood appear like Jeffersonian Democrats in comparison. Um, so to discuss this issue, these issues today, uh, we really have a, a fantastic um, panel. And I should, uh, before I introduce them, I forgot to introduce myself, um, uh, Karim Sajidpour, the Carnegie Endowment. And um, I, will, I will start um, to my far right and introduce Fred Hoff, who was the former senior State Department advisor on Syria. He is now at the Atlantic Council. And I think along with, um, I think many would agree with me in saying that his writings on Syria have really been the gold standard. Um, to my right is my good friend and colleague, Paul Salem who is the director of our Carnegie Beirut Center. He was kind enough to join us from uh, Beirut. Um, To Fred's left, to the far right, is Henri Barkey, a professor at Lehigh, um, was in the State Department in policy planning during the Clinton administration. Um, And to uh, Paul's right is is, uh, uh, my friend Emil Hokeyam, who is with the IISS, the Institute for International Strategic Studies. Uh, he is in town um, from the Gulf, as some might call it the Persian Gulf. Um, and Emil uh, has the dubious distinction of being my former intern, although he smartly denies that. Um, the end of a friendship. <laughs> so um, there's so many um, um, thoughtful, um, intelligent people in the audience who know much more about Syria than myself. So what I'd like to do is, is keep my moderating fairly brief. I'll ask them one or two rounds of questions, and then I'll hand it over to all of you um, quicker than I usually do. And I'd like to start off with basically um, broad, basic questions um, and start off with, Fre- uh, with Fred and, and ask him to what extent is the Assad regime self-sustaining and to what is extent is it dependent on the largesse of outside powers, whether that's Iranian financial support, Iranian military support, Russian diplomatic cover? Is there a silver bullet in terms of the external support that Assad is getting, where, whereby if we cut it off, uh, we could shorten his, uh, his shelf life? 
Uh, Karim, I'm not, I'm not sure there's any such thing as one silver bullet in any of this equation uh, in, in, in any respect. Um, I, I must say it's a bit intimidating to be asked something Iran-related by uh, Karim Sejadpour. It's like uh, Ryan Zimmerman asking me how to hit a baseball. Uh, I, think the, uh, I think there's a, there's a combination of support mechanisms for the regime, which, if withdrawn, uh, would render it uh, basically non-sustainable in very short order. Um, it's difficult, I must say, to, to piece together reliable information, perhaps some of my colleagues have it, uh, about the extent of Iranian support. Uh, but I suspect it is very, very, very significant. Uh, some people have told me that uh, even operationally, uh, out in the field, uh, you're beginning to see a situation that's roughly, roughly, not exactly, roughly analogous uh, to the early days of the Vietnam uh, conflict uh, when American advisors uh, accompanied the uh, South Vietnamese Army uh, to the field, uh, giving them you know, various, advice, various pieces of advice on weaponry, logistics, uh, and so forth. So I think, I think that's the key thing, support from uh, Iran and Hezbollah. I think from the beginning, uh, President Assad has counted on at least two other things uh, to sustain him. Uh, one, uh, his assumption that there would be essentially uh, no prospect of foreign military intervention. And number two, uh, that he would have the, uh, the support of the Russian Federation, uh, both in terms of honoring uh, weapons, existing weapons con contracts and uh, uh, supporting him internationally uh, in the UN Security Council and elsewhere. Uh, stripped of some combination of all of that, I don't think uh, this regime would last very long. The um, Jordanian government, you know, I've read from uh, various reports, Jordanian intelligence saying that um, Assad is going to run out of money in six months. They've been saying this for two years now. Um, Aside from Iranian financial support, do we have any idea you know, how they're sustaining themselves financially? Uh, I, I certainly don't have a specific idea of that, but the Jordanian intelligence report reminds me that uh, you know, somebody appeared before the Congress about uh, well over a year ago saying that this regime was basically a dead man walking. Mm. Can, you imagine, <laughs> can you imagine that? It's, uh, you know, it's, been, it's been a long walk, to say the least. And, uh, and, I, and I think it is probably impossible for anybody, uh, you know, from an analytical point of view, to project uh, how long this is going to last. If we were to wake up tomorrow morning with the news uh, that, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad has been killed or, or somehow left the country or something like that, I, you know, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. If we were having the same conversation essentially six months or a year from now, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. But these, these, these external support mechanisms, I think, are important in keeping it going. I think his near-term objective, obviously, is to hold Damascus at all cost. Damascus goes, the regime is gone. I don't care about all these alternate scenarios about setting up, uh, you know, in uh, Alawite areas. The regime is gone when Damascus goes. 
I think he would like to hold Damascus and then hope, hope uh, that the uh, that the appearance of the opposition and the fact of the opposition, the armed opposition, continues to trend in the way of Jebhat al-Nusra, Ahrar al-Sham, and these and these other groups, because I, I just have a, I just have a feeling, and uh, this is evidence-free analysis, but I just have a feeling that Bashar al-Assad has it in the back of his mind uh, that at the end of the day he will somehow be able to remarket himself to the West mm. as the barrier against Al-Qaeda in the Levant. Mm. Let me turn now to Henri and, and ask you a bit about Turkey. Um, some would argue that Turkey is America's only like-minded ally when it comes to Syria. Um, I just pose that question to you. Does Turkey, what, what is Turkey's ideal outcome in Syria? And what means are they pursuing to try to pursue that ideal outcome? And would you agree with the notion that Turkey and America uh, have largely overlapping interests in Syria? Excuse me. Uh, if you had asked me that question a year ago, I would have said yes. I think now we may see a divergence in American and, and uh, Turkish interests. But to answer that, I, I think what we need to do is to, uh, try to understand the way the Turks have looked at the region. I mean, they, more than anything else, want stability in the region for their own economic reasons. Syria was an important conduit to, to, to the Persian Gulf. They didn't want to see Syria go down. They didn't want Assad to go down. And in fact, at the very beginning of the, the crisis, I mean, the Turks tried very hard to convince Assad to do, introduce some reforms. And they actually, they even told Assad at one point, just do some elections. We'll support you. It can be sham elections. Sham elections, no pun intended. No but, <laughs> and and um, and then we'll support you. So so that was that was essentially what they wanted to. But once they saw that Assad was not budging and was not going to do anything, they they moved away. And like everybody else, they assumed and they looked at Mubarak. They looked at uh, at the other examples and they said, oh, six months. They, you know, in six months Assad will go. Um, the proverbial six months. But um, so now they're caught in a situation where for them the best thing is, of course, for Assad to leave. The sooner he leaves, the better it is. But that has been the case almost from the beginning. Um, in some ways, you can't fault, fault the Turks for taking the positions they did because I don't think they really had much of a choice. You can argue with their tactics, but with the strategic position that they took, that Assad has to go and he has, and we have to, one has to create an international coalition to get him out in one way or the other. I think that was the right policy. How they implement that policy obviously differs. Now, they also uh, have suffered quite a bit. I mean, they have 160,000 refugees, which uh, they are paying for. I mean, they are, yes, they're getting aid from, from the United States and other places, and they, from the looks of it, they're running a pretty good, uh, doing a pretty good job there. But it has caused uh, the government to lose face because everybody expected that once Erdogan and Davutoglu decided that Assad should go, that he would go. I mean, they themselves assumed that. So there is now, as, as long as Assad continues to remain there, so there is a little bit of a loss of face for Erdogan and, and Davutoglu, and they increasingly are coming under uh, criticism. But fundamentally, you know, I, they do want Assad to go. The, the issue, I think, they realize is that the consequences of um, of the current crisis in Iraq, uh, in Syria, is 
problematic for, for another aspect, and that's what's happening in, in, in Iraq. Everybody is more, I think, they're terrified about the, the prospects of Iraq going south. Um, and ironically, it's not the, for once, it's not the Kurds they're worried about. Despite what people say, uh, Turkish interest in, in Syria is primarily to stop the, uh, the PYD, the PKK offshoot, and we can talk about that later. I'm not going to go into details. I, I don't think they're really that worried. They don't like to, the Kurds there, but I don't think they're really worried. They're worried about the sectarianism, essentially, uh, spreading all through Iraq and, 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 and Syria. So what are they doing? And here where I think the divergence between the United States and Turkey emerges, I think the Turks realize, like everybody else, that once Assad goes, chaos will ensue, and that chaos is going to last probably for a very long period of time. That's not what they want. They want. But I don't think they, they know how to, despite their hubris, know how to stop it. So what they're doing is that they're banking on all the groups, except for the Kurds in Syria. So they're supporting everybody in the hope that out of whatever comes out, that they will have some clients. Now, when you say everybody, that also includes, obviously, jihadist elements. And that's where the United States and Turkey, I think, diverge. And, but how is, is Turkey merely acquiescing vis-a-vis uh, -vis those jihadists and allowing them to use Turkish border? Are they actively supporting those kind of groups? Look, when, when you're an outsider and you're looking at it from the outside, I can't tell you for a fact. Mm. I mean, there are all these stories out there, but which one is true, I, don't, I, I cannot tell. But what is the, I mean, you hear a lot of um, Turkish um, governmental and intellectual critiques of U.S. policy toward Syria. Uh, do you have an idea of what Turkey would like the U.S. to do in Syria? Well, the, the, I, I'm hoping that they have given up by now, but uh, that they wanted the United States to establish a no-fly zone. They wanted the United States to militarily get involved, if not with boots on the ground, but certainly... Uh, and probably Fred knows from the conversations he had with them, uh, they wanted us to get engaged militarily. They can't do, they cannot establish a no-fly zone. Um, and they, look, they want to outsource it to us. And, uh, but I think they realize now that the Obama administration is not going to do it. So whether or not they still push for that, uh, I don't know. But they were, seriously, that's what they wanted us to do. Okay. Let me move on, actually, to the jihadists and, 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 and to Emil, who's role-playing uh, the part with his new beard. Um, um, so Emil is based, uh, based in the Gulf, travels um, actively throughout the Gulf. And the question is whether there is, um, is there, we, we hear a lot about Saudi um, and Qatari support for these jihadist groups. Um, is there a coherent strategy that these two countries have? How is their strategy um, different from one another? And, and similar to you know the question about um, I posed to Henri about Turkey, um, you know what are their ends and what means are they employing to pursue those ends? Um, thank you. Uh, to make it clear, there is no strategy, but there is also a lot of fantasy about what the Gulf states are doing in Syria and how they are operating. Uh, the most recent one, just to share some color with you, there is a there is rumor that's going around that. Somehow, uh, the, the Saudi government has opened the doors of its prisons and allowed uh, uh, prison, Saudi prisoners to, to go and fight in Syria. I mean, that was like a condition of their, of their release. Um, that doesn't square with what Mohammed bin Naif, the interior minister of Saudi Arabia, has, has been doing for quite some time. And it doesn't square with the, the profound Saudi angst about a blowback in, in the region. So just to... to 
always it's it's, it's always important to to realize that we make worst case assumptions about what the Gulf states are doing, but very often they don't meet those, those expectations. Um, it's also important. It's it's easy to forget that the Gulf states at first. Uh, at the beginning of the uprising in Syria, were not interested in more instability, more political upheaval in the region. And for, for the, the better part of the first six months of the uprising, they were engaging Assad, even though the narrative of a jihadi criminal uprising was, was the one that was propagated by, by the Assad regime. But really, the, the strategic rationale for a greater involvement in Syria uh, crystallized over time. And we all know it, right? Uh, contain and, and reverse Iran's reach in the region, uh, reverse the loss of Iraq, uh, punish Assad for his previous slights. I mean, you know, we, we, you always have to take in, into consideration the very uh, the, the baggage that exists in that relationship because of, you know, comments like half-men uh, made by Assad in 2006, etc., but also because another important strategic consideration, the Gulf states were always focused on, on Lebanon and to some extent uh, uh, and pa- Palestine uh, to try and check Syria and Iran. And when the uprising in Syria started, they realized that actually by winning in Syria, they would actually win in Lebanon and <coughs> Palestine. And in any case, the demographics of Syria work to their own advantage. So this explains the, the greater involvement of, of those various countries. I think, also think it's important not to only think about uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar in that game. There are two other actors, the UAE and, and Kuwait, that are worth exploring. Saudi Arabia, we know where it stands in a way. It's, it's, uh, you know, it wants to be the champion of, of Sunni Islam. It wants to be the leader of the Arab world. Um, you know, it sees a, a post-Assad Syria as a probable strategic depth, some kind of proxy state. Uh, Qatar, we know that Qatar's regional strategy, power strategy basically uh, 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 depends on, on the Muslim Brotherhood, or at least there is an, an intention to use the Muslim Brotherhood uh, as part of that. But a country like the UAE is very interested, uh, interesting to, uh, to examine. This is a country that has bad relations with Salafis on one hand and the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and their own inclination uh, is not necessarily to get rid of Assad, uh, but that's, they see this as the, um, as the trend, as the trajectory, and they join that. But, you know, as the uprising gained a more Islamist coloring, the UAE took a step back because they saw the Muslim Brotherhood and the jihadis playing a greater role, and they didn't really want to be associated with that. They came back in the game when um, the Syrian coalition was formed in, in November in Doha because it was seen as, an, as a way to dilute the Muslim Brotherhood influence in the SNC. Kuwait as a state is not an actor in Syria. It provides a lot of humanitarian help. We saw them... Um, uh, uh, hosting a conference just, uh, just a few weeks ago on, on this. But Kuwait has emerged as, as really the financial hub because it has a lot of established charities, because it has uh, uh, mainstream established uh, 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 Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi networks, etc. So it's actually important to, to look at the, the Gulf picture in those very... Um, it's pretty fragmented, and, and the experience, and I'm sure Fred and, and others would have a lot to, to share at that level, is that they haven't worked very well together when they set up the, the control room in, in, um, in Saudi Arabia, when, when it was time to identify and, and equip uh, some of, of the groups in, from Turkey. Uh, so, 
I just warn against you know, this assumption that they're really working together with one final objective. And just to be clear, when we talk about the Gulf support for, um, um, for these groups in Syria, whether Kuwait, UAE, um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, we're not always or often talking about official governmental support. We're talking about private individuals, wealthy individuals often. Yeah, very true, actually. Uh, first, there is a large Syrian diaspora in the Gulf states. You know, Syrian expats or Syrian who are a member of the large tribes that span from Syria all the way into, into Saudi Arabia. And this diaspora has been very mobilized and, and has actually contributed a, a lot to the, to the war effort. Um, when it comes to Gulf individuals, it's also important to realize that uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, for instance, um, th- there is a, the government is carefully monitoring this kind of fundraising because they're worried about the blowback. I mean, the, the senior most Saudi cleric issued a fatwa trying to deter, uh, to deter uh, uh, Saudi youth from joining the, the jihad. Um, and, I mean, and just warning, because, because there is a, a, um, an awareness of that. It doesn't mean that it works. It doesn't mean that the, you don't have established networks that operate alongside the state or sometimes perhaps with, with you know, some complicity from, uh, from within, within government agencies. But what I'm trying to say is that, yes, it is a very complex, uh, very complex picture. Um, another issue is that the Gulf states have been um, key in, in uh, for instance, in enrolling Jordan in the effort. Jordan has been uh, a pretty reluctant country when it came to pushing for the exit of, uh, of Bashar al-Assad because they worried about the repercussions. At the same time, Jordan is um, you know, a, a, an ally or junior ally of the Gulf states, a country that really depends on their, their largesse, on, on energy subsidies, etc. And I suspect that the, the change in tone that we've seen in Jordan with uh, you know, the, uh, providing haven to a lot of the military defectors, uh, political defectors, uh, Prime Minister Riyad Hijab, for instance, etc., has to do with that kind of Gulf influence. Hmm. Um, Paul, um, you would travel often to Damascus in the past, probably haven't been there um, um, uh, recently, but I would be curious to know if you have any broad thoughts about what's happening first in Syria, but also the impact it's had on Lebanon. Um, you know, one question I have is that um, in the aftermath of the Iraq War, um, uh, our friend Vali Nasser wrote a book called The Shia Revival, uh, the reemergence of the, the Shia community as a result of what transpired in Iraq. They were unleashed. Um, do we now see a potential Sunni revival, um, particularly in, in Lebanon, um, the, the kind of reemergence of the Sunni community? Um, and what effect is that going to have on the sectarian balance? Well, first of all, I mean, a few reflections about Syria. One broad reflection that strikes me is that Syria, like Lebanon before it and like Iraq also before it, is in the process not of transitioning but disintegrating. Disintegrating as a nation, as a national unit, uh, partly because of the confessional ethnic makeup and partly by design of the regime, making sure that those divisions are strengthened, and the disintegration of state authority and state sovereignty. Uh, this, in a sense, perhaps is a Levantine phenomenon. Uh, it uh, brings to an end a century, effectively, since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the French and British mandates, the, cons- the new borders that were constructed, and the empowerment of certain minorities uh, uh, over these three states. All three now have reverted 
to uh, a conditions worse, in effect, than 100 years ago, which would be 1913. Uh, so the process is very nefarious, very long. Uh, it'll take a long time. It's a disintegration. It's a collapse. It involves already, as we see, extensive devastation of infrastructure, loss of life, refugees, devastation of economy, devastation of institutions. And that's why, regardless of the details, which are obviously are very important, I fear that we are now faced with you know, a decade or two, at least, of a Syria, which is divided, uh, uh, no real central authority that controls the whole country, penetrated by regional and external powers, in many ways, like Lebanon and Iraq, its neighbors. That's the sad and difficult reality that, sadly, the Syrians are moving into, and obviously, uh, those of us in the neighborhood are affected by as well. Um, there were ways to avoid that, uh, but they would have had to require, they would have required the regime, the state itself, accepting some kind of transition. Of course, it has not, it did not, and I do not expect it to. Uh, and I believe the regime uh, it prefers to fight it out, even if it's to lose, rather than to make a deal uh, and give uh, some state power to their opponents. Uh, so I, I have a very grim sense of uh, what's coming, let alone the divisions in the region, let alone the divisions around the world, which, which simply make uh, the challenge much worse. Uh, internally in Syria, it's certainly the case that uh, the regime has withstood the loss of its sovereignty, loss of control of many towns and cities, some defections, uh, but it is certainly, unlike the other regimes which were hit uh, by Arab uprisings, uh, you know, in, in the last two years, has certainly uh, shown its coherence, its strength, and its power. Uh, it is obviously true that it is being helped and supported by outside powers, but it itself is a ferociously powerful and effective and large fighting machine. It's not a weak organization that is being propped up by Iranians or Russians or others, and that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, the regime with a strong Alawi backbone, armed to the teeth, with all weapons from chemical weapons to everything else, uh, uh, is and will be the strongest fighting force in Syria for the foreseeable future, particularly if there isn't massive military support, which doesn't seem likely to the opposition. To me, that means that Syria, sadly, is destined for years of, of, of fighting. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, there will be fighting, of course, in and around Damascus, uh, the regime is not able to hold all the Damascus region, but neither can the opposition beat the regime, defeat the regime head-on in, uh, in the immediate future. Uh, support from Russia that I've heard of uh, from people close to Hezbollah and others in Lebanon includes uh, technical support, intelligence support, some of the high-tech uh, support to counteract high-tech things that may have been provided by the West. Uh, also perhaps uh, financial in terms of printing of money and uh, things of that nature. But as Fred mentioned, none of this is, is certain. We don't know. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of support for this regime. Uh, Lebanon, surprisingly, has survived the first two years of this, uh, uh, this massive conflict in Syria. That is surprising because Lebanese politics is completely aligned with and against the Assad regime. That's sort of what Lebanese politics has been about 
since 2005 and the assassination of Rafiq Hariri, the former prime minister, the so-called March 8 and March 14 coalitions are defined by their support or hostility to the Assad regime. Uh, so one could have expected much more uh, immediate conflict in Lebanon. Some of the reasons why I think Lebanon has muddled through and managed are, are a number of the following. First of all, unlike all the other Arab states, uh, the Lebanese political system, when the Arab uprising started, uh, uh, is a power-sharing system where everybody has a stake. So there was no one group with a revolutionary agenda to create great you know, uh, unrest and to completely change the political system. Uh, secondly, Hezbollah has proven and had proven in 2008 so militarily dominant that uh, you know nobody easily considers confronting them at this point because they're so over-dominant above everybody else. Uh, thirdly, Lebanon has gone through its own civil war, and they look at Syria, and they, you know, they, they recognize what happened in Lebanon between 75 and 90, and that gives Lebanese leaders, Lebanese parties, Lebanese people a considerable amount of immunity against delving into such uh, an experiment again. Uh, in addition, most of our politicians are billionaires with a lot of stake in the economy, so they don't want to risk, uh, risk too much. Uh, a final factor I'd mention, the, the demographics of Lebanon today. Hezbollah basically dominates the capital, Beirut, and the south, and the Bikaa. Uh, the main Sunni uh, block is in the north. Uh, uh, of course, there's Sunnis in Beirut and and others, but an area where they are able to mobilize and and they are, is in the north of the country, Tripoli, Akkar, and Dunni, in those areas. Uh, but in effect, there is a buffer between the Sunnis of the north and Hezbollah and Beirut, which is about a million Christians in between. Uh, so that, you know, oddly, has also kept a bit of, uh, uh, a bit of stability. The uh, long-term fears in Lebanon uh, are uh, a number. One is if the jihadi element in the Syrian opposition you know, continues to increase, and if that eventually you know, succeeds in Damascus, and if Damascus becomes a radical Sunni jihadist capital, there is great fear, obviously, that that might easily spill over into Lebanon. Uh, the spillover so far in that context has been quite limited, but one doesn't know what risks might come down the road. Uh, a second big uh, risk is the massive number of refugees. Uh, we've approached around over 200,000 in a country which is only 4 million people. And those are registered refugees. It's probably 200,000 unregistered. Uh, the government expects up to half a million by the middle of 2013. And those are numbers that Lebanon has no experience handling. Lebanon is appealing for aid, has gotten some pledges from the Kuwait meeting, and hopes to manage some of this. But this is uh, a massive... Uh, unsettling uh, dynamic. Uh, the final thing I'll mention is uh, in the medium term, if the Assad regime falls, the tense standoff between Israel and its northern border, uh, Hezbollah and Syria, uh, which has held since 2006, might be unsettled. Uh, and Hezbollah certainly fears that if the Assad regime falls or if it just loses Damascus, uh, that standoff with Israel might not be sustainable, and that in some future we could have another confrontation mm. between the two. Otherwise, Hezbollah is not panicking. They feel the regime is tough, it's strong. They're happy that the jihadists are taking the upper hand in the opposition because they can say, I told you so. A lot of Christians in Lebanon are worried 
that with the Sunni politics turning more jihadist, maybe they should you know align more with uh, with Hezbollah. So it might have interesting uh, implications on Lebanese politics. Great. Thank you. So I mean, one of the great challenges always of working in the world of policy is that. Um, you not only are asked to diagnose the problem, but offer solutions to the problem, offer prescriptions. And that's going to be my next um, question before handing it over to the audience. And, you know, when it comes to the Syria um, policy debate, there's basically two broad parameters. The first parameter is that we, we just do nothing. Um, we had a terrible time in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's time to do nation building at home and we just kind of watch from afar. Um, the problem is, is that we have this humanitarian catastrophe, um, over 60,000 civilian casualties, two to three million people displaced. Put aside the humanitarian aspect, we also have a situation in which you know, several countries throughout the region could be sucked into this. So, so you have that, that's the extreme end of the debate, to so simply do nothing. Um, the other extreme end of the debate is to enact what we saw in Libya, which was some type of a, a multilateral, whether it's a NATO or an Arab League style uh, military intervention, um, tried to come up with a no-fly zone. And, and that doesn't seem to be in the cards as well. And I think that everyone up here on the stage is probably somewhere in the center between these two, two poles. But I'd like to just go one by one and, and, and ask each of you, you know, in, in, in um, kind of several minutes, how how you see the, the policy um, uh, debate moving forward. And, and the big concern um, that you know, people have had, and one of the reasons why I think the Obama administration has been reluctant, is this fear that if we, if we intervene militarily or if we provide the opposition with arms, um, these arms are then going to be turned um, against us several years down the road, as we saw in Afghanistan. So why don't I start with Fred and, and go back down the line? Sure. Thanks, uh, Karim. I, I think from the uh, first of all, little little truth in advertising. I left uh, I left my Syria duties in September of uh, of last year. So please keep that in mind and uh, uh, do not attribute to me any uh, anything resembling a canonical version of uh, of how the administration is considering these options uh, right right now. But I think it's safe to say that from the point of view of the administration. Um, do nothing is is not an option. I mean, the administration would take the position it's doing quite a bit uh, in terms of uh, you know, non-lethal uh, assistance that's aimed at uh, local committees inside Syria uh, in terms of humanitarian assistance, uh, in particular. Uh, in the early in the early stages of the uh, of the conflict, the administration did a lot of diplomatic heavy lifting uh, to try to isolate the regime both economically and politically. Uh, so doing nothing, uh, I think, has really never been uh, an option uh, for the U.S. government. But you're, you're quite right. There is, there is another end of the spectrum. I think the, uh, I think the difficulty uh, the administration has, the thing it's really, really wrestling with here, is that it, it, has, it has an objective, and this has been articulated publicly several times by, by Susan Rice and others. Uh, you know, the objective is to, uh, is to try to bring about a peaceful, managed transition in Syria. 
the strategy basically, the strategy in support of that objective basically comes down to uh, uh, supporting the mission of uh, Special Representative Lakhdar Brahimi and also the non-lethal, non-lethal assistance to the opposition and the, and the humanitarian assistance. Uh, the objective problem I think the regime has is that its analysis of the situation, and as far as, I'm, as, far as I know, this is, this is held in common by policy people and, and intelligence analysts, is that the future of Syria near, mid, long term, is very likely going to be decisively influenced by men with weapons on the ground. Uh, That the possibility of uh, Lakhdar Brahimi, despite his enormous skills, being able to pull the rabbit of peaceful managed transition out of the hat is nil or close to it. I wouldn't say, let's not say nil. I mean, this would be the best outcome for Syria. Stop the bleeding quickly, manage transition. Uh, but as one of our, uh, one of our panelists mentioned, uh, there, there is simply no evidence yet of any regime interest uh, in playing ball with this. There certainly wasn't during the time of uh, Kofi Annan. So, so if the assessment is men with weapons are the decisive element here, one way or the other, uh, the question comes down to either playing in that arena in an effort to influence or not. Now, I think, I think I'm on safe ground to say that nobody, nobody in the United States government imagines uh, that the United States is going to be able to micromanage some kind of specific end state in Syria. That is just not on. Uh, the United States and any, any combination of countries you could think of just don't have the ability to micromanage an end state. Uh, the question is one of whether or not you're going to try to influence, and it's it's a bit more complicated than just the shorthand of arm the rebels. Okay, mm. uh, I know there are people that have very strong feelings about about this about this subject, but it's trust me, it's more than it's more than writing an essay or an op-ed. Uh, there are some legitimate questions about end use and proliferation. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless. If one is going to try to shape, influence, try to determine in some way winners or losers, it's almost inevitable to play in this arena. And and I think operationally, the objective is really one of trying to dominate to the maximum extent possible the logistical systems by which things enter Syria. Trying to deter, trying to, as best we can, as best we can, and none of this is going to be perfect, make sure that the people we think ought to have arms, get them. Try to make sure the people we think should not have arms, don't get them. 
this is easier said than done. Those of you who have experience in government, either the military, the intelligence agencies, whatever, know, know what I'm talking about. This is an enormously difficult operational challenge. But, but this, in essence, is what, is what the administration is, is wrestling with, whether there needs to be a new objective that is more in conformity with the assessment of what's actually happening on the ground. Thank you, Fred. Uh, Henri, a few months back in the Washington Post, you argued against um, the, the, the far end of the poll, which was no-fly zone or some type of a, a NATO-style military intervention. Um, what about on this specific point, which Fred just talked about? About um, you know, Feel free to answer the, the more macro question of U.S. policy, but also on that specific point of how to go about or whether to go about trying to um, coordinate arms to the rebels. Um, well, I want to take issue if you do nothing. Do nothing has this... Um, you know, we talk about the do nothing Congress, no, and so it's. Moment, but what, I'm, what I meant I to say know. was do nothing on the military right. uh, end of that. No, I, I, look, I, I haven't changed my mind in the sense that I don't think we should get involved militarily. I don't think we should, uh, for the very good reasons that Fred actually mentioned, we should not arm the opposition. There is no the FSA and Al Nusra and all these other guys. They're all fighting together. They're all working together. They have their own objectives. They want to overthrow this Assad regime. And if we just tell them, oh, FSA, you know, we're giving you these things, but, but please don't give them to al-Nusra. You know, we, we, we beg you, don't do it. This is, not, this is not serious. I mean, every arm we give eventually will proliferate. But beyond that, I actually think that this is one conflict in which maybe the United States should stay on the outside. We, the United States has been involved now in so many wars in so many Muslim countries, Afghanistan, Libya, Iraq, you name it. Right. This is, I think, this, this temptation that we can bomb or we can send arms or we can intervene is a very easy, easy temptation. But the truth is, we are not going to make friends. All we have to do is look uh, at Iraq to see that, the, uh, that we haven't, except for the Kurds, we really do not have many friends in, in Iraq. Mind you, we messed it up in Iraq, but I'm not, this is not the point. But, but, but I think whatever we do, in, in Syria, we are not going to succeed in micromanaging. We're not going to succeed in getting our, our guys in or, or, or people that we are comfortable with. This will be decided by the people on the ground, unfortunately mostly by armed uh, folks. And, and Syria is going to go through a very long transition process. Look at Iraq. I mean, whatever whatever United States did wrong in Iraq, the truth is Iraq is still ha- has yet to settle itself uh, down, and it's going to take a long time. So, for us to to spend blood and treasure, I think is wrong. Besides, every single country in the region will have their own. Um, people, their own agents, their own clients in Syria working. And they have the proximity, (laughs) they have the advantage of proximity, of language, of culture, of everything else. We are not going to get any, we're not going to we're not going to get anything we want. And if you think that even our allies, that the Turks, for instance, will 
uh, if we say to them, please don't give alms to al-Nusra, and they, they've, they've come to the conclusion that that's who they want to give alms to, that they will listen to us, is, is also wrong. So this is a huge quagmire in, in, in we should... Now, if the regional countries want to get involved, maybe they should get involved militarily too. But they shouldn't just look at the United States to, 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 to try to, to come to us and say, you, you solve this problem, and then if we were to get in, then they're going to blame us for, for messing it up, which we will certainly mess it up. So, um, so from that perspective, I think this is one conflict we should stay out. And I certainly don't, don't believe in, in, in arming, arming the opposition. I think the opposition now... Is too fractured, too, there are too many jihadists involved. Um, that's it. Just to be clear, aside from humanitarian aid, <coughs> you would say we, we, we stay out, no, no lethal aid, no arms support. Look, we can, we can maybe uh, give intelligence support in the sense that if we know, for instance, that the, the Assad... Uh, Folks are going to use either chemical weapons or they are going to use certain, they're planning a certain operation, and especially if it's in the civilian area, letting the FSA know through certain channels, that's fine. If the Turks and the others get involved in, in, a, in most, uh, shall we say, engaged military operations, offering them intelligence, that's fine. But that's where I would draw the line. Uh, Mil, and, and specifically on the question of the, you know, the counter-argument is that as long as we, we continue to stay out of it, this asset could you know, potentially be around for, for a year or two, and as the conflict persists, the most radical elements of the Syrian opposition become empowered. Yeah, I agree. The, the worst-case scenario out there is Assad surviving in Damascus and so on, and then have a proliferation of groups controlling, you know, territory all over Syria that we don't know are difficult to deter, difficult to engage with, etc. Um, you know, the macro picture is, is the following. Um, the U.S. is at best marginal uh, to the dynamics of a, of a conflict that has over, already overtaken the Iraq war in terms of regional and strategic significance. And I'm measuring my words here. I mean, even if you look in humanitarian terms, if you accept the 70, 60 to 70,000 deaths, and I actually think it's, it's on the higher, uh, uh, I mean, I would push for a higher estimate. Um, you know, Syria is two-thirds of Iraq's population, and in less than two years, you had 60,000, uh, 70,000 people killed. That's just for the humanitarian interventionist in, in the crowd. Uh, if you look at the, the ripple effect in neighboring countries, you know, Paul mentioned Lebanon, uh, Jordan, etc. The U.S. is not shaping any of those dynamics. I mean, you've heard a very articulate argument from, from Henri about why it shouldn't. I, I happen to think the, the opposite. I think that uh, first there is a demand for U.S. leadership in the region. A number of those states have thought that they could get involved. They, they push, they, they, they put down resources, etc., only to realize that they, they weren't getting anywhere. And in particular, the Gulf states, I think that the uh, th this conflict uh, uh, has, has exposed their, their weaknesses. Uh, first, they're, they're hostage to their own contacts in Syrian society. They don't really appreciate the diversity of Syrian society. Um, the Gulf states have clearly don't have the expertise, the networks, the strategic experience to be involved 
in, in that fight to try to shape uh, a new Syria, whether that's a good thing or not, is also debatable. Uh, but certainly, you know, the Gulf states are not going to be in position to develop proxies the way the Iranians have in, conf- in, in countries where you have civil strife, uh, you know, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Um, I wouldn't be calling for, for you know, a greater U.S. involvement if I didn't feel that there was a regional demand for U.S. leadership, that there, is, there were actually big questions about you know, where the U.S. is when it comes to the big regional debates. Is the U.S. trying to, to at least influence uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the face of a new Levant? And, uh, um, a related consideration here is just this is a plausible scenario for, for, for you. I mean, it's... In the near term, it's entirely possible that the U.S. is going to have to fly drone missions over Syria to take out this or that nasty jihadi groups. The narrative is going to be the U.S. never really supported the rebel groups against Assad, but when it came to jihadis or you know, security of Israel and whatever, it got involved. I really worry about that narrative because people will tend to validate their own reading of U.S. policy since March 2011 that way. It's going to affect the way the U.S. is perceived in the region in pretty fundamental ways. Syria today is, you know, the, the focus of attentions across the region, and a lot of Arabs will decide where, where they stand on, on, on the U.S. based on that. Perhaps it's too late to provide guns, to, to, uh, to, to provide weapons. And perhaps it was never a good idea to provide high-end weapons. By the way, most of the guns that, uh, that most of the weapons that the Syrian rebels have uh, come from, you know, uh, Assad's arsenals, or it's like the do-it-yourself kits. I mean, you know, like they're building IEDs and so on. I mean, the self, they're self-sustaining dynamics to, to that conflict that, that actually worry me. Um, so perhaps it's too late to go down this road, but guns are going to continue entering Syria, and I think the U.S. should, ha- should play a role in shaping those various conduits and who it goes to. Henri and I agree on intelligence sharing. I, mean, I think intelligence sharing should have been part of the package very early on. It could be done uh, with enough deniability through third parties, or it could be done in a more direct way. Um, and... Perhaps this has been done, I don't know, I'm a one-man operation, not an intelligence agency, but, you know, this is, the, the U.S. is missing opportunities to develop, not friends, not even allies, but some partners on the ground for serious contingencies. The day you're going to have a jihadi group operating just on the border with Israel or trying to prove, you know, Assad has never shot at Israel. We, the revolutionary forces, will do so. We'll fight on the Golan Heights. You're not going to have any partner on the ground to deal with the situation without having a direct Israeli retaliation or U.S. drones or something like that. Thank you, Amin. Uh, Paul? That's it? That's the question? Well, I was was going to give you an out, uh, (laughs) but now that you ask... Where would you situate yourself in this discussion, this violent debate between Henri and Emile? To basically, you know, on one hand, uh, <laughs> only provide humanitarian assistance, or we, we, we actually uh, need to intervene more decisively, precisely to, to end this conflict and to prevent it from becoming even more radicalized. Well, let, I mean, I look at it, if you step back a little bit, I mean, there are three tiers Right now, this is a proxy war. It, it obviously has a massive Syrian internal component. 
It has a very serious regional component, and it has a global component. I mean, the Security Council and others, plus direct support for various sides, it is effectively the first global proxy war maybe since the end of the Cold War that I can really think of as a sustained proxy war. And these three levels, when you, I mean, what we want in Syria is, is an end to the fighting and some kind of transition to, you know, a new political order, whether that includes elements of the regime or not, but a transition of sorts. That is not going to come from inside Syria in any foreseeable future. There's no, there's no possibility of that. That is not going to come from the region. The countries that used to speak with everybody in the region, which were Turkey and Qatar, have taken sides and no longer do so. There's nobody in the region backing one side or the other that actually really talks to the other side. That's a great loss, but there will be no mediation really coming from the region. Uh, and unfortunately, the U.S. and Russia, and including China and Europe, have lined up so far on opposite ends of this, uh, of this conflict. This conflict also, to my mind, doesn't have a military solution. You could have maybe military intervention, but I don't see a military solution in the sense that one side you know, rolls into Damascus in a matter of months and it's over and then some new order takes place. Uh, but the situation that we, uh, we or people who want to try to end this conflict in Syria requires movement at some level. And I think the only level at which movement is possible is the global level. Because as I said, regionally there's no movement there, internally there's no movement there. And the only glimmer of hope I can see is a potential, you know, breakthrough, rapprochement, something between second-term Obama administration and the Russian, you know, Putin's presidency and so on that might, you know, a re-reset a re of U.S.-Russian relations on, on various issues, which is right now very unlikely, but that would begin to find a glimmer of agreement. At the end of the day, there is common ground, in a sense, between the U.S., and Russian interests in Syria. Uh, were the Bush administration around when this happened, they would have gone, I think, you know, maybe especially the early part of the Bush event, you know, this is an opportunity, complete regime change, let's go in there, and you know, this is an ally of, of Iran, and it's clear we'll do it. But for the Obama administration, the main concern, and we hear that is, you know, you know reduce involvement, stability, avoid jihadis, get Assad out, uh, and in many of those issues, Russia has the same concern, wants, wants to stop this conflict, wants jihadis to be weakened, understands that Assad has to go, wants part of the regime to remain, but wants you know, some kind of political normalcy to return. So I, the only area where I see some potential for movement is on the global level. But I also have felt uh, and still feel that in order to have more movement at the diplomatic level, you need perhaps more pressure. Uh, and I think that's where the, you know, there was expectations at one point uh, last year that perhaps the U.S. would, of course it was understood it's not going to intervene, it's not going to do anything major, but it would ratchet up the pressure. And we just read in the, you know, I think in the New York Times yesterday that there was a plan, Petraeus and Hillary Clinton and so on. The Obama administration didn't take it in terms of well, so providing support. That's essentially what Fred and, uh, and Emil are talking about. Yeah, what I'm saying is that... Um, the logic of raising the pressure in order to create the conditions for serious diplomacy would put pressure on the Assad regime, would put pressure on the Russians and others to talk. In the absence of that, diplomacy is much more difficult because 
you know, why make a deal when the Assad regime feels they can fight this for many years, Russia and Iran feel that they're not losing. So uh, it's a very complex situation. I fully understand why the U.S., as the U.S., sees no obligation. You know, the U.S. is not the world's policeman, is not in charge of everybody's troubles. But it is also the case that the international paralysis and the absence of major action, in effect, has cost Syria and the Syrian people uh, uh, much loss. You know, it has had an impact. Now, you know, did they have an obligation to do something or not? That's maybe at a different level. So you agree with both of them, both uh, <laughs> Emile and Henri. Um, I know you have a question, you, you want to follow up, but why don't I, you, you probably can come back to it um, in the Q&A. So um, I'll turn it over to all of you. If you can um, just please identify yourself, uh, be as concise as possible, and uh, refrain from throwing shoes if you have any disagreements. Um, and wait for the microphone, please, uh, Hussein. Thank you. I'm uh, Hussein Abdul Hussein with Arai Newspaper. Um, my question to Henri is uh, about the intervention. And uh, you seem to think of intervention as a three-star marine general trying to form a coalition, uh, a ruling coalition like in Iraq. Uh, but I think we have a, a, a newer uh, model, which is Libya. And even though Libya is a mess now, but uh, uh, no one blames the West for it. And my question is, why don't you look at this in the form of tilting the balance? If, if the United States tilts the balance in favor of the rebels to defeat Assad, is this better? I mean, it, it'll be a mess, but is this mess an improved version of the mess that we have right now where people are being, uh, where be, people are being killed all the time? So uh, why just take one form? I mean, yeah, the United States can, can easily tilt the balance, and I think this is the United States' best asset because, you know, uh, given intelligence, not even Washington is admires its own intelligence because we, we say we don't know who's fighting on the ground and then we put a bunch of them on the, on the list of terrorist organizations. So I think that the, the military component that the United States might be the, the best solution for now. Do you agree or disagree? Henri, before you answer, I'm going to bunch together a few um, questions. So let me go on the way, way back. Um, They're far, far, yeah. Yeah, please, keep going. Is there a microphone now? Uh, do you think that the meeting in Cairo in the past few days uh, and the presence of Ahmadinejad with other leaders from Turkey or uh, Egypt would have an impact on what's going to happen in the region uh, on the Syrian issue? Great, thank you. And let me take one more. I need to uh, have some gender diversity here, so please, uh, the woman in the center there. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Meher Kayoum. I'm a political economy blogger. I was just wondering uh, if we could discuss a little bit more about the uh, sectarian divisions. Um, I read recently that the Druze have, are starting to shift their alliance away from Assad and supporting more of the opposition. Um, I know everyone keeps saying the proverbial six months, it'll go down, it'll go down. But where does this fit in? Uh, regardless of time, uh, of the time, but event, if that makes any sense, like sequence of events, um, is this significant enough that a minority group is basically calling out the Assad regime on not fulfilling its promises to protect them? Okay. 
Um, Henri, why don't you start? Tamir, Fred, please. Look, the, the, Lib the Libya example is, is a little bit deceiving because, let's face it, Gaddafi's military forces and Assad's military forces are two very different uh, animals in the sense that in, in Syria you have a very sophisticated, uh, um, uh, sophisticated anti-aircraft anti uh, system that the Russians built designed essentially to fight the Israelis. This is not uh, Libya's, you know, kind of uh, staged, uh, staged military one. Two, any campaign to suppress air defenses in Syria will take huge numbers of American aircraft bombing Syria. It's not, in, in Libya, yes, we bombed, but it was relatively few targets. In, in Syria, it would be multiple, multiple, multiple targets. And, and I remember from the Iraq days, not during the, the, the Bushes, but even during the Clinton years when there was a no-fly zone, the Iraqis would very often illuminate American aircraft with the radars. Very often those radars would be in civilian areas, and we would fire back and, hit, and often hit, have civilian, civilian uh, um, uh, casualties. So I think the, the Libya example is, is a bad one because we're talking about a qualitatively very, very, very different military intervention. And also I think that in, um, as you heard, I mean, the Syrian, uh, the, the Syrian military, the Syrian Alawite military is much tougher We'll continue fighting, and it's not clear to me that if we were to intervene, whether or not they would, the, the, the level of violence would not necessarily increase, maybe even use of chemical weapons as a result. And I don't actually believe that, you know, if there is chemical weapons, it's going to be easy for us to come and, 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 and get them. Um, and I, I really don't think that, that, that's, that that's an option, because that will involve a huge commitment on the part of the U.S. military. Now, if there was another military force that was coming in on the ground and we were supporting it, that's different. But there isn't one. And um, so Libya, I think, in that, from that perspective, is a bad example. Uh, Fred, can you also address that in a specific question? When, when you were in government uh, in the early stages of this, did you guys ever seriously consider trying to pursue either uh, NATO style or or, or an Arab League, uh, um, you know, Arab League involvement as well as as uh, uh, took place in Libya. That's yeah, a it's a good question, Karim. And uh, there's a uh, there's a legacy of government service uh, that I live with and uh, continues to motivate how I answer uh, <laughs> questions like that. Uh, and it revolves around the uh, fact, not notwithstanding what one may hear in testimony in uh, halls of Congress, uh, one does not discuss internal deliberations or the nature of one's advice uh, to senior officials. So I, I can't, so, I no, can't go there. Yeah. I won't go there, ever. Um, I, think, uh, I think Henri's uh, caution on this is justified in many respects. But I, I guess the central point I would like to make is that the United States will not have the luxury of standing aloof from what is happening in Syria under any circumstances, one way or the other. 
the United States, I don't like the phrase, but one way or the other, the United States is going to be sucked into this. Now, I personally would draw a strong red line over anything, anything involving boots on the ground or any, any of that. I, I just don't want to go there. I would say the same thing about strategic bombing campaigns uh, and those sorts of things. Uh, but Syria, on its current trajectory, appears to be on a one-way trip toward state failure. Okay? We can already see the implications of what's happening in Syria you know, in a 360-degree radius. You've got you know, upwards of 800,000 refugees now spread around. You've got what, three, three and a half million internally, internally displaced. One way or the other, the United States is going to be drawn in to this situation. Uh, the question now, and it's an operational question uh, for experts, really, is whether or not we can shape on the margins. Okay? Even if we, and, and, and I think Paul made a, an excellent point on this, even if we maintain as the national objective here, peaceful managed transition, even if we retain that as an objective, there's a question about how do you get to it? And do we have the ability, uh, going to the question, to, to tilt the situation on the ground so that, uh, so that the chances of, uh, of some kind of a negotiation increase. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm, I'm inclined to share the view uh, that this regime, in essence, would rather see the country burn than participate in something like this. You know, when you come right down to it, if you were to pick out the one person in the world who has the ability to save Syria from the direction it's headed, like it or not, it would be Bashar al-Assad. He had options at the beginning of this crisis. He has options now. There's no evidence. Well, we know, we know we, he didn't exercise the correct option at the beginning of the crisis, which would have been to get himself down to Dera to sit with people to apologize for what happened, to arrest officials, to hand out compensation, to listen to people. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. This is in March of 2011. March 2011. Um, and and I'm, I'm afraid he's not, he's not inclined to do anything uh, creative or positive now. But the, the question is, and again, yeah, no boots on the ground, no expectation of a micromanaged outcome. But can the United States influence uh, the course in Syria on the margins? I, I share the skepticism about you know, any kind of direct military intervention, no-fly zone, etc. Um, I think the, the dynamics on the ground, the, the nature of the terrain would make it enormously complex. Um, and and when I argue for increased support for the rebels, I don't, uh, my view is not that it's going to tilt the balance decisively, militarily speaking. What I want to see happening is um, a 
the creation of a dependency, if there is at one point a global convergence between the Russians and the, the Americans for that matter, it may not matter if you don't have any leverage on the ground. It may not matter if you haven't opened those, uh, those lines with rebel commanders. It won't matter if you haven't uh, built up the capacity of the Syrian coalition and uh, the, the civilian leadership, etc., to do so. Uh, but somehow, you know, this, this, um, this element seems to be absent. I mean, you know, the United States announced very generously a couple of days ago that it would provide $155 million uh, additional humanitarian help. Uh, but none of it would go through the, uh, the Syrian coalition. Uh, well, I thought that the objective was capacity building and force these guys to start developing, proving on the ground that they were effective. And that was a deliberate decision by the administration not to do so. So we're missing that component about capacity building, about creating those kind of positive dependencies. Um, on the issue of the regional dynamics, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Cairo meeting, uh, first, uh, Ahmadinejad, I, I suppose, is, is irrelevant when it comes to security policy. Karim may uh, correct me, right. but Ahmadinejad meeting Morsi is not, is not a breakthrough. And we saw the regional quartet that supposedly brought Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and, um, and Egypt together. It didn't go anywhere because the, the, the objectives of those parties are fundamentally uh, not aligned. Uh, there's very little to talk to. I think the Iranians were happy to use this mechanism to break out of the regional isolation, but it, it didn't go very uh, very far. And I, I agree with Paul. I mean, there is no regional mechanism at, at this point. Um, and finally, the, the issue on uh, sectarian divisions uh, in, in Syria. I think it's it's very important. And you know, one of the most abused words in the Syrian uprising is defections. Um, a lot of people desert, don't defect. The uh, don't defect. You may leave the regime, but until you join the other side, you haven't defected. And Assad can still live with a number of Syrians choosing not to support him anymore as long as they don't fight him. And we see those dynamics uh, uh, currently happening. There's also another element to that. You mentioned the Druze, and, and you know, there are other communities around the country. Assad forces uh, made quid pro quo, regional compromises, live and let live deals with a number of communities, including the Druze. If you look at the map of Syria and look at uh, the graphs of deaths, I mean, the region of Sueda, where a lot of the Druze are, uh, um, uh, um, are located, uh, borders the region of Dara. Uh, they have similar population size. Uh, if you look at the graph, the, the difference in deaths is, is enormous between the two because the Druze basically decided to stay on the sideline. They want to see what's happening. They don't want to, to, to invest themselves in, in a big fight. Uh, you know, Walid Jumblat and others have tried to, to shape that. But what has happened in recent times is that you, you've had more military defector, uh, deserters uh, from Druze origin who, you know, have operated in Sueda, have gone to, uh, have gone to uh, Jordan, other places, and feel that, you know, Assad is his on, a, on his way out, or at best is going to be the mayor of Damascus. That, you know, they have, but that, that they have to, or the world or Damascus, or, but they, that somehow they have to take charge of their region the way perhaps the Kurds have done so elsewhere. Uh, so you have those local dynamics taking place, the tragic thing is that they're, 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 they're occurring without any kind of like national opposition strategy. They're very much local decisions, local dynamics are shaping the new Syria. Thank you. Did you, have, you want to say a word about that? No, I okay. So, uh, Jill Doherty, please. In the, in the middle here. 
Thank you. I just wanted to ask Fred, um, uh, Jill Doherty from CNN. Do you say, you're using that phrase, on the margins, to influence it on the margins. I just wanted you to explain a little bit more what you mean by that, because, of course, we're all reading the paper. We're all reading about this uh, dissent in the administration and about the Petraeus plan, um, which apparently was to, that was shot down, which was to arm in some fashion, perhaps through intermediaries, some vetted groups that they felt were... Um, reliable. I think Henri said it's too late for that or that you can't really isolate them from jihadist groups. But what do you mean on the margins? And is it too late for actually um, targeted arming of certain groups in Syria? Uh, Let me start with the too late. Uh, uh, Oh, you want to combine some? Go ahead. ahead. Uh, But hold the thought. Uh, Kim Atas in the back. Way back. Hi, I'm Kim Ratas with the BBC. I want to actually pick up on uh, Jill's question. There has indeed been reporting about dissent within the administration about this plan to arm the rebels. And it's being depicted in, I think, quite simplistic terms. Everybody came to the president and said, you have to arm the rebels. And he alone, perhaps with a few others, said no. And I'm wondering if any of you have a sense as to really how much people like Petraeus and Clinton actually pushed for the plan? Were they convinced that this was the way to go? Um, Did they tell the president this was the absolute best option? Because it sounds to me like we're looking at this in a slightly black and white uh, fashion. Thanks. Uh, Please. Thank you, Kareem. Thank you very much. Edward Joseph with SICE exactly on the same theme as these two questions. Uh, perhaps uh, Mr. Hoff or Emil or others on the panel, Ari or Mr. Salem would uh, address this as well. The, uh, the question of influence on the margins, what about this uh, very open, public, embarrassing, uh, very bitter dispute within the opposition over the uh, statement, the position of its president of expressed willingness to meet with a representative of the Assad regime. This uh, produced a huge uh, backlash, uh, as you all know. And in terms of the influence, is this not an example, a perfect example of the kind of thing that we could do at the margins, at least coach and engage with the, the opposition, that they form uh, coherent positions like this? Or is it perhaps, as Emil suggests, that Perhaps if you don't ante up weapons, you really don't have too much influence. Thank Appreciate you. the thanks, thoughts thanks. of that. Um, and if we're concise, we can do another round. So, um, Fred, you had a thought on your mind. So yeah, I'll be very, I'll be very, very, very concise. Okay. Uh, uh, start with the issue of whether, whether or not it's too late, uh, Jill. Uh, we don't objectively know the answer to this question now, and we won't know the answer to the question until and if... Uh, certain efforts are made uh, to try to influence on the margins. The, uh, the, only, the only point I've made in my writing is that whether we're talking about this situation or something like, say, the two-state solution, where people will say analytically it's too late, uh, regardless of how arguable those propositions may be, they cannot form the basis of U.S. foreign policy. 
period. You, you, just, you just cannot form policy based on, on that piece of, of, of analysis. Uh, on the margins, I think it goes basically to an element of your question. How much do we actually know about who, about end use, about the reliability of that end use? Uh, you know, frankly, I wouldn't go there if we, if we didn't know the answers to some basic questions. Uh, do I know whether or not we know the answers to those questions? No. Uh, that, was not, that was not part of my job. Uh, I would just offer the editorial opinion uh, that if we don't know the answers to those questions, shame on us. Um, on, the, uh, on the question of... Uh, how hard uh, did various officials uh, push for things? I don't know. I may, I may be uh, the only person on this panel who, who knows something about that, and I'm not talking. <laughs> uh, well, just very briefly, I mean, the issue of the division of the opposition, lack of unity, has been a problem since the beginning. And one can blame them for the fact that even as an SNC and now as the coalition, they have not been unified. Uh, and that, that's true. But uh, uh, I think it was also, in a sense, maybe used or overused as an excuse really not to support them, even in some, some significant but basic ways, well short of the things that are being warned against by my colleagues. And uh, I think there should have been much more help given to the opposition, despite its various divisions in the beginning and even... Uh, today, there's no doubt that's a very that's a very major part of the weakness of the opposition. It is neither able to command the respect inside Syria and organize the fighting groups, nor is it able to present a face that is credible in terms of any potential negotiation. And all of that is very true. In terms of uh, the question of wanting to know, sort of, who are all the groups in the Syrian armed opposition? Where will every you know all the weapons end up? I, I kind of agree with my my friend Hussein that. You know, it's uh, it's it obviously it's you know it's already an extensive mess. It's going to get much messier, and in a way that neither the U.S. nor Russia nor others like. And we're already well uh, along in that case. So I think the options there is not well. We're not you know make sure that weapons do not get into the wrong hands. They already are, but rather uh, provide certain types of support in the most careful way possible, short of boots on the ground, short of intervention, all of that. But that raises the pressure significantly against the Assad regime. That raises a red flag to the Russians and others that, no, this is there's a serious conflict that the West uh, is certainly not intervening, but is serious about it, which will give more chance, to my mind, for a negotiated uh, solution led by the international community. That's the only glimmer of hope, I think, to end the suffering of the Syrian people. Thank you. There is another aspect to all this that we have not uh, paid enough attention to, and that is the nature of the opposition. And when you look at what some of the jihadists are saying, what they have said in the past, what some of the, the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in the past have said about the Alawites in Syria, and also the Christians. I don't see that they will be necessarily very merciful when they win. And so do we want to be the ones who enabled 
them? I mean, in a way, are we going to be in a position where we say, oh, you know, we armed them, and then look who came to power and look what they've done. Be yes, there's a horrible situation in Syria, but I, whichever way you cut it, it's going to be horrible. The question is, do we want our fingerprints, our, uh, do we want people to eventually say, you enabled X to happen? And that, we don't know. There's no way. I mean, Fred is right that we don't know what the, uh, the outcome will be. But I don't actually think that on the margins even will be able to, will become, will become irrelevant very quickly, whoever wins. It's choosing between a sin of omission or a sin of commission. One of the two. Okay, this is a test for everyone. Uh, can you name me top five, top five massacres committed by the rebels against other groups like, you know, that were a matter of policy or sectarian cleansing and so on? Anyone? Well, okay. Because there, there is no, for the moment, there is no, the rebels are not going in, there is no evidence of systematic sectarian cl uh, killings, cleansing, etc. There is still, Jabhat al-Nusra has mounted horrible suicide bombings, etc. But the, the main brigades haven't mounted the kind of awful abuses. They have done a lot of bad things at a local, individual level, etc. That dynamic may well change. And we still have an opportunity to, you know, at least educate, offer a code of conduct, uh, scold, uh, you know, co coerce perhaps, uh, refrain from funding certain groups depending on code of conduct that, for instance, the Syrian support group here has developed, but others. We're missing that opportunity to shape the behavior of those groups, and it's not going to be nice. It's going to be very, very complex. It's going to be, uh, as, you, as, uh, as uh, Fred said, very messy. And I don't expect the rebels to show the same level of self-discipline that we have seen up until now. Thus, the fight is going to get nastier, more sectarian. There are already you know, bad sectarian dynamics across the country. There are a lot of Sh uh, Alawite uh, families that are packing uh, from, you know, their houses from Damascus and moving to their mountain. Uh, around Hamas, there's uh, you know, decisions at a local level to leave, etc. All I'm trying to say is you're worried about fingerprints. I think that we have to give it a shot to go to some of these groups and try to cultivate the kind of leverage and goodwill that can provide some of those atrocities from occurring. I think it's worth a shot. But leverage is not just about weapons. It's also about capacity building for the opposition. Yes, of course you're going to have uh, you know, dissent within the opposition over Mu'az al-Khatib uh, offer for a conditional offer for dialogue. I think it was a courageous uh, move on, on his part, by the way. Um, but as long as the opposition is not busy doing something on the ground, you can expect a lot of, the, uh, a lot of uh, uh, debate and, and, uh, and tensions within, with these, uh, between them at a rhetorical level because that's the only thing they can engage in right now. I mean, it's funny, but uh, the Syrian opposition is only learning the politics, uh, their politics now as it's happening. The, Syria is one of the most diverse societies. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We've been too spoiled by the precedent of Libya, where we had a more uniform, more coherent NTC that emerged at first and had one call. And, and you know, but we have to keep. We, it was an aberration, and the, the 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 Syrian opposition is certainly not a you know the best model for for how an opposition should go about about politics. Uh, but that's the tool you have right now. And if you lose the political guys, uh, you're going to end up with a 
you're worried about the Muslim brothers. I worry about the rebel commanders who are going to hold power with guns and not even listen. And the Muslim Brotherhood will look like, you know, Jeffersonians, uh, the Jeffersonian Democrats compared to them. We're Jefferson. Um, we have time for three last questions. Um, if you can be concise, please, here in the front. Thank you. Jakob Schroeder, I'm a student at American University. Um, President Obama continuously declared that the red line will be passed if it comes to the use of chemical weapons. So let's consider the scenario that the Assad regime is losing control of a couple of their weapons. How would that change? And we cannot track where they go. So how would that change your position regarding any kind of military intervention? And follow-up question on this, wouldn't it be more easy for the rebels, instead of going all the way to Damascus, to try to get control of a couple of weapons to force the United States to do something? Thank you. In um, the way back? Yeah. Uh, Julian Haddis with the U.S. State Department. You talked about the fragmentation of the Syrian state I wonder, are we also witnessing the fragmentation of Syrian national identity? And is it possible to put Humpty Dumpty back together again in the long term? Thank you. Last question, uh, please, here in the front. Yeah. Hi, um, my name's Alex, and I'm from American University as well. Um, sorry. I was wondering, what is the best and worst case scenarios you see going into the third year of the conflict? So... Why don't we um, start with Paul and then with Fred? Yeah, a few comments. Uh, just a bit about the radicals. I mean, one comment I wanted to make that the radicals or jihadis and so on, they thrive in war, but they rarely win elections. Uh, what I mean by that is as long as this war drags on, those are the conditions where they, where they will get much, much stronger. Uh, the closer we can get to a time when this conflict is over, and there's some kind of organized political process, that is the key to weakening them. It's not the amount of guns. Everybody has guns in the Middle East and so on and so forth. You can get more, you can get more fancy, less fancy. But it's the transition to a post-conflict situation which is the key to weakening the radicals. Uh, on the weapons issue, I will mention the Israeli attacks that happened last few days ago. As you know, we haven't mentioned that. Uh, that the Israelis have been very clear that any weapons moving from Syria to Lebanon, whether chemical or not, will be attacked, and they did so just a few days ago. On the fragmentation <coughs> of the state and the nation, yes, I think Syria, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, unfortunately has gone a long way towards certainly collapse as a state, and as Fred mentioned, that is getting more and more severe, and uh, uh, is moving towards disintegration as a nation. Uh, a lot of that was, in a sense, by design of the regime, uh, that uh, if the regime were to lose, they do not want to leave a nation behind. Uh, and the makeup of Syria, like the makeup of Lebanon and Iraq, is fragile and is being uh, uh, exploited negatively in that way. Will it be possible to put Humpty Dumpty together again? Not the way it was. Uh, in other words, I, my expectation is that Syria, 10 years from now, Maybe the conflict will be maybe over, but it will be a non-centralized, non-sovereign, uh, fragmented place. Will they eventually find some coexistence? I think so. I think at the end of the day, the Alawi order will not survive in Damascus. Now, it might take five years, it might ten years, but in the long run, 
the Alawi era is over. Uh, they will relocate uh, uh, very forcefully to their homeland, to their enclave. Uh, they will sort of maybe sort of like a Hezbollah in, 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 in Syria. Uh, there will not be a strong central state emerging in Damascus anytime soon. They don't have the resources. They don't have the capacity to do so. So I see, I mean, the best scenario for that would be at least a peaceful fragmented Syria uh, rather than a completely, you know, one that is not continuing to tear itself apart. Thank you, Paul. Um, yeah, on, on the question of uh, chemi chemical weapons use, um, I still think it's un improbable that, that Assad would, would deploy those kinds of, of weapons. But he's been testing every possible uh, red line or assumed red line around. I mean, if you look at uh, the trajectory of, uh, uh, you know, the, his, his military strategy, right? I mean, it's, it has only escalated from the use of, armored capabilities all the way to, to missiles, air force, etc. So I don't know about, um, I don't know about uh, uh, that, that his mindset, I mean, that he has like a moral uh, uh, disposition against chemical, uh, chemical weapons. I, I do worry that, uh, you know, he's, as, as uh, Fred is saying, that if he prefers to burn the country down, and if that's part of the toolkit, not now, because I still think he can make rational decision about his defense strategy, he could use it, but still further down. Um, the worst case scenario in the next year for me is really uh, a repetition in Damascus of what we've seen in Aleppo. I think uh, the, the, uh, the big campaign to take Aleppo starting July uh, was a prime example of rebel miscalculation and, and overreach. Uh, they didn't prepare politically and militarily. The fight has turned into in some, to something terif uh, horrible. Uh, you know, the city is, is uh, I mean, Terepo is Syria's largest city. Um, and uh, it's in a total state of, of chaos and humanitarian suffering, etc. Um, perhaps the rebels have learned from that uh, in terms of their strategy. Uh, but as they prepare to go into, into Damascus, and we see signs of that in the past months and in the past few days, in fact, uh, you know, that strategy that uh, may not survive the conflict. And we may see a, a massive fight over Damascus that will drive many more uh, refugees into Lebanon, which is only 40, 50 kilometers away from, from Damascus, into, into Jordan, etc. Uh, so for me, that's the worst case scenario. If, if we have this big battle in Damascus, just replicating what we're seeing in, um, in, in, Damas in, in Aleppo. The best case scenario, to be honest, is a surprise, like the July 18 bombings. You know, somehow someone take down Assad or something happens at that level. It's, it would be an accident. That's not the trajectory. An inside, something like that, that, that brings other elements that are more willing to, to negotiate. Uh, the, the chances of that happening are still pretty small, but on July 18, something happened, and, you know, these are accidents. So these are the, my, two, uh, my two extreme scenarios. Um, let me just say that I don't have a best-case scenario unless you think Assad deciding to become an ophthalmologist again and maybe taking care, <laughs> taking care of uh, Ben Ali in, uh, in Saudi Arabia is what he wants to do. Um, I, I think I will t my worst-case scenario is a little bit different uh, in the sense that I, the worst-case scenario is the, the bleeding of the Syrian crisis into Iraq. 
and and we are already seeing Iraqi Sunnis who are perceiving a victory in Damascus. In fact, one senior Iraqi uh, told me uh, a couple few months ago. He said the, the the adage or the what the Sunnis are saying in Iraq is uh, the Ottomans are back in Istanbul. The Umayyads are about to take Damascus back, and we are the Abbasids are coming back to the Baghdad. So there's a way in which the, the this sectarian conflict is going to upend Iraq in a way in which, and I see Iraq as a far more important country than Syria. I think Syria essentially is is a country that Hafez al-Assad made, made important just by playing the regional geopolitics very smartly. It doesn't have oil, it doesn't have any economy, it has, it has nothing. Um, and whereas Iraq is, like, is far more serious, it has huge amounts of oil, it does border Iran, um, and so what happens in Iraq in some ways is far more important uh, to me. And, but the crisis in Syria is, I think, accentuating... Uh, the divisions in Iraq, it's making the management of Iraq was more difficult. You're already seeing the tensions, not just because, between the Sunnis and the Shia getting worse, but also between the Kurds and, 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 and Maliki, and between the Turks and, and Maliki. So the, the, I, I'm not about to predict what's going to happen in, in, in Iraq, but clearly the signs are not good. And I think in some ways, if we are going to focus on something as the United States, I think Iraq is far more uh, urgent because if Iraq were to implode again, uh, then I think all hell is going to break loose in the, in, in, in the region. So that's my worst-case scenario. The, the, the statement, the signs are not good, can probably consistently be applied to every country in, in the Middle East, unfortunately. Uh, Fred? Yeah. Uh, my my worst case scenario is uh, simply more of the same, uh, with uh, some of the uh, some of the possible twists and turns uh, mentioned by my uh, co-panelists. Uh, uh, Central Damascus being consumed uh, in combat, uh, spillover effects in uh, in other countries. Uh, best case scenario, uh, say during this calendar year, in my opinion, would be the uh, the Syrian uh, opposition council. Supreme Military Council and local committees uh, with plenty of United States help uh, and the help of others as well, uh, coalescing and establishing on Syrian territory in liberated areas a uh, provisional government uh, dedicated to the proposition that in Syria citizenship trumps everything. Uh, I agree that national identity has been fragmented to the point of being shattered. Uh, this may just be an emotional reaction rather than an analytical reaction. I hope this is not a permanent condition. Uh, Syria, to me, uh, is an important country. Under proper management, it can have a vibrant economy with a terrific agricultural sector, among, among other things. Uh, but the process that's going on now just, just needs to be stopped cold. So the uh, formation of a provisional government, which perhaps over time uh, would be uh, in a position uh, to negotiate with whatever remains of the regime in Damascus, a transitional national unity government, I think also the formation of a government would resolve 
uh, several legal problems pertaining to United States assistance. But the key thing here, again, and this is sort of a process thing, for the United States to get behind this kind of direction for the opposition, uh, a direction that would result in a clear alternative for the people of Syria, it would require a fundamental reappraisal and recasting of American strategy. Because, for example, if a government is established and recognized as the government of Syria by the United States of America, there would be no bar, legally, to having a security assistance relationship with that government. So I think you see where I'm going with this. If we're going to get behind this and drive, try to drive opposition unity in this direction in order to provide a clear alternative to Assad, it means the strategic reappraisal is absolutely mandatory. Thank you so much, Fred. That was um, a great analysis, but also a great deal of empathy there for Syria. Um, we're out of time, but I wanted to thank all of you for coming. Your questions were great, and, and, and join me in thanking the panel.